Welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 108. My name is Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well, this week I've been playing Rollerdrome, plus also checking out the latest pirate-themed season in Destiny 2, called Season of Plunder. Now, Bungie was also back letting us know what's coming next with their big expansion in 2023, and that one is Lightfall. I'm going to round up everything we know about it and what's next for Destiny 2. All that, plus I've got Midnight Fight Express, Tiny Kin, and Gamescom News. So as always, it is a busy show, so let's get to it. Well, welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Yeah, I'm good this week, and I've been out for a week in Greece for part two of our summer holidays here at This Week in Video Games. I've been off to Santorini with my wife. You know, it was super hot. Really, really relaxing, and it looks like I missed the rain here in the UK, which is always really, really good news. Not so great news here in the UK is the Queen has unfortunately passed away, which while it wasn't unexpected, it is very sad news all the same. She's like the nation's grandmother, so I wanted to say thank you to the Queen for everything she's done for the people of the UK, plus also wish King Charles III the very best of luck as he takes to the throne. Now, she's been the Queen all my life, and it really is hard to think about the UK without her, but I guess now we are in uncharted waters. Well, back to the gaming news. Since we last spoke, we also had Gamescom 2022. That was One Night Live with Jeff Keighley. You know, while the show did drag on a little bit, there were some notable announcements, and I'm going to bring you all the news later on in the show as it happened in my roundup of Gamescom 2022. Well, before we get into it, it'd be great if you could leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. An honest review would be really, really good. So it really, really helps the podcast to get more eyes on it. And I do have a link in the podcast description. So if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out that review on a future episode of the podcast. And also, if you want to support the show further, check out This Week in Video Games on Patreon and check out all those Patreon benefits. Okay, so that is my waffly intro out of the way. Let's get to what I've been playing this week. Well, this week I've been checking out a few indie games. We've got Rollerdrome, Tinykin, and also Midnight Fight Express. Well, Rollerdrome is a new roller skating shoot 'em up. It's a console exclusive to the PS5, and I'm going to bring you my review of that first up in the show. Tinykin is a Pikmin-like platformer. Got unique animations, and also it's getting lots of buzz about this release. So I'm going to bring you my thoughts about that one later on too. Finally, Midnight Fight Express. That is an isometric beat 'em up from a small one-man studio, and really, it is a massive achievement. Plus, the gameplay is a pretty good time as well. I'll be bringing you that, plus all my first impressions of Season of Plunder from Destiny 2, and also rounding out what's coming next from Bungie. Well, that's what I've been playing, but first up, let's get into my review of Rollerdrome. Rollerdrome is a cross between Tony Hawk, a first-person shooter, and the movie Running Man. It's kind of a new sport where players skate for their lives while mowing down bad guys at the same time. Now, this one is a console exclusive to the PS5 and may be one of the best under-the-radar indies this year. You know, while we'd like to think this is set in a dystopian future, actually, it's only eight years away in 2030. You play as Kara Hassan, a skater who wants to take on the Rollerdrome, which is a futuristic blood sport where you've got to skate and shoot for your life against house players. So these are a range of enemies that include melee combatants and also missile-wielding mechs. 
So much of the game will be taken up chasing high scores via the various challenges, but you've also got a dark mystery to unravel with the story as well. Yeah, you've got the skating and the action sections of Rollerdrome. They're going to take up most of your time, to be honest. But also, you've got the story mode first-person sections as well. Here, you go into the locker room and office before heading out into the main arena. And these story sections, they aren't mandatory. If you don't want to go through them, you can rush through them to get to the action if all you want to do is skate and shoot. Although, I reckon the story is pretty interesting. So personally, I didn't really mind going through those story scenes. This isn't like Neon White, so where the dialogue seemed to go on forever, it's much more manageable in smaller sections of the narrative. Well, the main objective of Rollerdrome is the action and the game seriously delivers on the vision of a Tony Hawk shooter mashup. You know, both the skating and the gunplay are happening at the same time, which could be overly complex. However, Roll7 have found a way to keep it manageable, easy to pick up and tricky to master. You know, it's a good balance of being able to get up and running quickly, then if you want to get deeper into the mechanics, then you can. Now, as you're skating along, you don't have to worry too much about speed, plus the aiming is quite forgiving, meaning managing both mechanics at the same time is relatively straightforward. You know, while the game is easy to pick up and play, so while the game is easy to pick up and play quickly, that doesn't mean it's not challenging by any means. You know, enemies get really difficult as the levels go by, as do the challenges, which are reminiscent of the original Tony Hawk games. You're going to be tasked with shooting down enemies, then combining that with various tricks and skills to chain together, and that's going to improve your time and flow through a level with each flourish. Now, levels are predictable with their enemy placement, so you can learn them thoroughly, practice, and then run through them as quickly as possible as you get better and better. Well, the arenas, they are varied, plus the designs of the game make them pop out the screen. You know, the art style is similar to Sable, and then you've got the desert-style arenas, or you've got the American-style malls. The soundtrack complements the game's design, with Electric Dragon soundtrack, and that emulates 70s disco and 80s synth. Now, given this one is on PS5, then the DualSense features have been worked in too, with the controller providing haptic feedback when you're grinding rails and also shooting the various weaponry. You also get the sound of you skating coming through the speakers on the controller, which is a very nice touch. Well, the adaptive triggers are utilised for the weapons as well, making the DualSense a very useful addition to the game. As you make your way around the arena, the visuals and the audio get more intense in parallel to the action. Each kill adds a score multiplier, plus shooting enemies also helps your combos rolling. So ammo didn't really seem to be an issue in Rollerdrome. I did have to slightly be careful, but ammo refills always seem to be within my grasp. Performing tricks help refill weapons, plus all your guns share collective ammo, meaning you can be skating past enemies while charging refills through various tricks, so you can always jump in with a pistol or shotgun, unload a few shots, rush away, charge up again to repeat, and keep those combos rolling in. Now, the gameplay loop is all about speed, movement, shooting and reloading, plus you can improvise as well. New enemies with new abilities are constantly thrown in your way throughout the campaign, but Rollerdrome does a really good job of not overwhelming you. Enemies include riot-shielding, wearing gun-wielding enemies, or you've got enemies with bats to keep things fresh, and they can really mix up the combat variety. There's also a decent slow-mo mechanic where you press the left trigger and aim, and Rollerdrome does slow-mo very well. You know, there's something about the skating and the shooting that works really, really good here, and the slowdown mechanic too. There's a super reflex mode in which you can dodge snipers, missiles and mines while slowing down time and boosting up the power of your shots as well. Rollerdrome does a great job of making you feel powerful without going too overboard. You know, at first there's a lot going on when you enter the arena, but after a few tries and replays, you are going to feel comfortable. 
Rollerdrome's campaign is roughly five or six hours or so, plus you've got good post-campaign content as well that opens up for some replayability. Given the nature of the game, you're going to want to go back and play levels over and over again, as that is the nature of this skating and shooting game. Similar to Neon White, you're going to want to go back and beat your times, as the action and the tricks makes you want to come back for more. Well, Rollerdrome is an admirable indie game, it's decent fun, albeit one that gets slightly repetitive in later levels. The game is absolutely gorgeous, more often than not you've got screenshot and shareworthy action sequences, plus the story development is interesting in this very near future dystopian world. Roll7 has had a great year so far with Oli Oli World and now Rollerdrome. This is another great indie game that's fun to play, quick to pick up and also difficult to master. This one is well worth playing. Well, the developer is Roll7, the publisher is Take-Two Interactive and also Private Division. It's released for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, and it was originally released on the 16th of August, 2022. I definitely have to thank Roll7 for providing a code for this review. Well, that is it for my thoughts on Rollerdrome. Really, really good stuff. Definitely recommend you pick that one up. But next up, let's have a look at what we got next for Destiny 2. Well, Bungie was back recently with their big annual showcase, letting us know what is coming next for Destiny 2. The main focus here was Lightfall, the next major expansion, plus we're really starting to hurtle towards the end of the Light vs. Darkness saga. We've got a new subclass and new enemy types, plus we've got new friends too with the Cloud Striders, so the future of Destiny 2 looks really bright. Today I'm going to dive into what is coming next for Destiny 2. Well, first of all, we've got Lightfall. So Lightfall is the next major expansion on the Destiny 2 roadmap. That is coming on February the 28th, 2023. This one is about the beginning of the end of the Light vs. Darkness saga. So Lightfall takes us to Neptune and the neon city of Neomuna, where we're going to be taking on the Shadow Legion, a darkness variant of the Cabal. Plus we've got new Tormentors, which appear to be Rolk-like mini-bosses. Kallus appears to be reborn via the Witness, as a disciple of the darkness. Plus we got a brand new darkness subclass coming with Strand. This is our second darkness subclass where we literally weave threads of consciousness. Now we got a new story, a new raid, new dungeons. Plus we got a legendary campaign that is making a comeback. So Bungie announced that 66% of players who played through the Witch Queen campaign actually played a legendary difficulty. So it's really, really great to hear this is making a return, especially given Bungie made their name with Halo campaigns. So paired with the new Dark Forces of Kallus and his Shadow Legion, we got new enemy types called Tormentors, which look like roaming mini-bosses. They look Rolk-esque, so he was the boss of the last raid, the Vow the Disciple. Now, almost combine these with champions, although Destiny 2 players really, really don't like champions, so maybe that comparison may not be welcome. Tormentors look like a new exciting enemy type, much like we had a light-bearing hive with the Witch Queen campaign. And hopefully, Tormentors are going to be more frequently used than Lightbearing Hive, which we used effectively in the campaign and also in some lost sectors on the Throne World. So, Cloud Striders are new allies on Neptune, and we don't really know too much about Cloud Striders at the moment, other than they're protectors of Neptune, almost the guardians of Neptune themselves. Well, next up, let's have a closer look at Neo Muna. So, the Witness is coming, and the Pyramid Fleet has arrived on Neptune, where Neo Muna Neon City has been hidden for generations. Neptune and Neo Moon is unlike any other Destiny 2 location we've had before. 
Yeah, we're used to broken down old derelict cities, frozen moons or ravaged throne worlds. This is a neon city and looks more like Night City from Cyberpunk 2077 rather than the last city on Earth. This could be Nefeli's stronghold, referred to at the end of the Witch Queen campaign and the subsequent missions. So Rasputin had apparently knowledge something called Nefeli's stronghold. As I say, there are some clues at the end of those missions and the law says so new intel awaits you on the evidence board and a report includes a note to Ikora. So to Ikora, here's the AICOM RSPN protocol transcript we picked up from the wounds. According to this, before initiating Yuga Sundown, Rasputin killed all the protective measures in place for human colonies and the settlements. There's a big list of code names for the moon, Mars, Earth, the Exodus ships, etc. But Rasputin also refers to a place called Nefeli Stronghold. No record of that in any of our databases, forwarding to AB for cross-reference. Then a follow-up message from Anna Bray brings up more questions and it answers. So no hit on Nefeli Stronghold in any of Rasputin's records. Can't even find the original transcript you're quoting. If it's real, someone removed all traces of it. And if they did, they did it so cleanly, I'd suspect it was Rasputin himself. No action items on this case, just an unsatisfying label of unsolved. Well, really, really interesting stuff there from the Destiny 2 lore. Well, Nefeli is Greek for the goddess of the clouds. So we've got Neptune and the planet covered in clouds, plus also the cloud striders too. And it really all starts to make sense. Now, I'm happy that Bungie made reference to this, but you really had to dig deep into the lore. Now, I was aware that Nefeli's stronghold was a thing, but didn't really put two and two together regarding Neo-Muna. Well, next up we've got Strand, so our new Darkness subclass that has been long rumoured, and it's green as predicted. It's not poison though, as we thought, it's Strand, which is weaving threads of consciousness. We've got three new supers, one for each class. So Warlock, that's the Architect. The Hunter is the Threadrunner. The Titan is the Tyrant. And together with Strand, we're getting a grappling hook to take advantage of the vertical nature of Neomona. It's going to be really interesting to see how players use Strand, and specifically the grappling hook, given the older content wasn't made with this in mind. We did see a Guardian using Strand to grapple onto a train and getting pulled along, but we're going to have to wait and see how this interacts with the environments. Well, in a recent interview with Games Radar, Dan McAuliffe, who works on Destiny 2, said, I'm always worried about breaking the game, especially when you add something as ambitious as our new movement ability, one that we intend to extend across the entire game. I've got a lot of faith in our team's ability to test and vet that kind of thing, and I am probably most nervous, not nervous, but excited to see what kind of utility it has in PvP. As with everything else that's introduced, it's going to bring a change to the sandbox that we will react to. If you can imagine doing past raids and thinking, so maybe I want Strand in that jumping section because that's a struggle for me, adds Blackburn, well, we like that, but we also do not want to be building the game with a player that hasn't earned Strand, or, you know, just likes running solar, feels pulled. We're really thinking about balance here, you know, some cool moments you can accomplish with Strand. So I was playing this recently where there's this BS thing of traps between me and where I wanted to go. I'm watching Robbie Stevens, our assistant game director, hobble through the traps and I'm like, nah, I'm just going to grapple. Well, that grappling hook seems really, really cool. Can't wait to get my hands on it in Lightfall when that comes out. So more big announcements now. We've got new social tools for the game. A few new tools come to Destiny 2, some of which we've asked for for many years. So Guardian Ranks aims to help new players through new player experience by providing clear objectives. 
you're going to be walked through various levels of content, starting with easy content like strikes and patrols, and working your way up to nightfalls, dungeons, and then finally raids. Commendations are going to be introduced too for players, so you can provide feedback to other players as well. Commendations are going to work into your overall player rating, which is going to work towards the long-requested feature called Looking for Group. LFG is a way to find other players for non-match-made activities, and this has existed outside the game in many forms over the years. Yeah, Bungie launched an app, plus they've also got the Fireteam section on their website, and that appears to use the same technology. So if you don't have a clan or friends who play Destiny 2, this is a very, very valuable tool, and something I use on a regular basis to raid, or do Nightfalls, or any other endgame PvE content. You can also use this for Trials of Osiris, although personally I use it much more for endgame PvE. Well, also we had the announcement of no more sunsetting, so sunsetting itself is also being sunset, so Shadowkeep, Beyond Light and the Witch Queen, and Lightfall campaigns, they're going to be staying in the game. The most recent campaign which was taken away by sunsetting was Forsaken, but we've seen the other campaigns like the Red War from the original 2017 campaign, plus other locations like Mars, Io, Mercury, they've all gone into the Destiny content vault. Well, happily, this is the end of sunsetting, and hopefully we're going to see more stuff come out of the Destiny content vault. We've also got new endgame activities, so we've got a new raid for Lightfall, plus we've got two new dungeons coming in Seasons 21 and 23. We're also likely to get a returning raid from Destiny 1 in Season 22, but I don't think that has been confirmed just yet. Well, loads of really, really exciting stuff there for the future of Destiny 2. I'd love to hear what you think. Let me know on Twitter, at TWIVG Podcast. Would really, really love to hear what you think. Well, that is it for the moment for the future of Destiny 2 with the Lightfall expansion and Strand. But next up, let's have a look at the current season. Let's have a look at Destiny 2 and the Season of Plunder. Well, Season of Plunder has arrived amongst loads of Destiny 2 news. The Season of Plunder in its own right is a huge announcement. We've got new story content, three new activities... Loads of new loot, returning King's Fall Raid, Arc 3.0, plus some enticing new cosmetics. Let's dive right into the details. Well, first of all, let's dive into the story of Season of Plunder. So we open up with a cutscene, Eremis narrating, cursing Mithrax for joining the Last City, under the watchful eye of their oppressors, and the Great Machine. The camera pans on Eremis's frozen body on Europa, and her hand twitches. She is thawed. From the frozen prison she's been in since the end of the Beyond Light campaign, and it sounds like if she's joining the ranks of the Witness. Eremis is free, and she's looking for Darkness Relics. So the main characters we've been hanging out this season are the Drifter, Mithrax, and the Spider. So the Drifter accompanied us through the first mission, where Spider was being smuggled out of the Tangled Shore. So Spider is now in the Elixney quarter of the last city. Plus we've got Ido, Mithrax's daughter, and Elixney's scribe who documents history, so this season is all about being a pirate, so we are plundering loot, riding ships, finding hidden underground treasure, and trying to get these dark relics before Eremis. Because if she gets to them first, well, you know, there's going to be huge trouble. Season of Plunder certainly has a light-hearted feel to it at the moment, although characters are alluding to potential dark clouds coming all around us in the last city. Now we are officially on the countdown to Lightfall, and with a name like Lightfall, that probably doesn't mean good things, for those living in the Lost City underneath the Traveller. 
We are swashbuckling all around the solar system at the minute, but Mithrax appears to have a dark past. I think something bad might be about to happen to his daughter, Ido. So overall, the story has a fun feel to it, but it does feel like the sunshine before the storm. I think we are in for an action-packed build-up to Lightfall between now and the 28th of February 2023. Well, next up, let's have a look at the activities. So we've got three activities this season, which is great news, provides a bunch of variety to the season. So we've got Catch Crash, Expeditions, and also Pirate Hideouts. Catch Crash is the most swashbuckling of activities. We shoot ourselves like Guardian Cannonballs from ship to ship, plundering and gathering map fragments. So Catch Crash is like a mini menagerie, with many encounters along the way, culminating in a boss battle, seasonal loot and currency. Then you've got expeditions where you have to pick up engram loot, chuck them into this roaming machine, which we have to escort to a goal, fighting enemies along the way, culminating in a boss battle. Pirate hideouts, on the other hand, are older lost sectors, which appear to have been repurposed, and this is where we pick up our darkness relics. All three work together quite well with a good amount of variety for catch, crash and expeditions. You know, new expeditions are available each week. So far, we've had one on Europa, one on the Cosmodrome and one on Nessus, and a few more are going to open up as the weeks go by as we get into the rotation for the season. There seems to be a small amount of saltiness in the community about lost sectors being repurposed, but to be honest, I think this makes a lot of sense. So it looks like some of the legacy lost sectors are being run backwards. I think if Bungie can squeeze some more value out of these legacy locations, spend more time on activities like Catch Crash Expeditions, then by all means just do it. For me, the activities work really, really well. We're seeing variations on older themes. Not something exactly new, but we've only got a limited number of actions we can perform. You know, getting to something truly new when we've got four seasons over a year is tough. So the concept of jumping from ship to ship is very cool. That's found in Catch Crash, so more of that, please. Well, next up, let's have a look at the loot for the season. So we've got a number of loot updates this season. We've got a new world loot pool. That includes some absolute bangers. Plus, we've got some new Nightfall weapons, which include some returning classics. We've got seasonal weapons, a ritual weapon that shoots real cannonballs, plus some great new exotics. The loot this season is really, really good. We have a refreshed world loot pool with a very powerful and very popular Taipan 4FR Linear Fusion Rifle in there, which is one of the most popular weapons in the game right now. Boudicca C is an excellent sidearm, and the Amit AR2 that is one of the strongest auto rifles we've got in the game, so it's really, really good news on the world loot pool front. So as for the seasonal weapons, this season we've got a Fallen-themed set, which is good in its own right. We've got a Scout Rifle, a Shotgun, a Sidearm, an SMG, Linear Fusion Rifle, and Machine Gun. Now, I'm a big fan of the Machine Gun, the Scout Rifle, and the Linear Fusion Rifle. Many of the weapons are Arc-themed, which are going to work great for builds this season. We've got the Seasonal Exotic Weapon 2 called Delicate Tomb. That is a Fusion Rifle. This helps us create Ionic Traces as Guardians, which in turn tops up our abilities to quickly like grenades, charge melee and class abilities like rifts, barricades and dodges. Delicate Tomb is a great seasonal exotic weapon that's going to work great with Art 3.0 builds, which many of us are leaning into this season. In a first for the franchise, we can also get hold of a Lightfall exotic weapon this season, two seasons early by pre-ordering Lightfall. You know, previously, we've had no time to explain for Beyond Light, Osteo Striga for Witch Queen, so I don't really know if Bungie was nervous about pre-orders for Lightfall, yeah, but they've added in access to Quicksilver Storm, a new auto-rifle that also shoots micro-missiles and turns into a grenade launcher. Although it has been disabled for much of the start of the season, given the number of bugs we've been encountering since the season of Plunder has launched. 
Well, we've got three new exotic armor pieces which are mixed in terms of reviews. So Point Contact Cannon Braces for the Titans, the Gear Falcon's Halberk is for the Hunter, and the Fallen Sunstar is the Warlock Exotic. I've got two out of the three at the moment, and unfortunately I don't have the best one. A Point Contact Cannon Brace is seen as underwhelming for Titans. Fallen Sunstar, on the other hand, is pretty good, and it helps generate Ionic Traces, and creating an ability spam art wallet build when combined with the new season exotic fusion. So Gear Falcon's Halberk is apparently the best, but I don't have that one just yet, although it's really, really good for Void Hunters. Well, we've got a couple of returning Nightfall weapons this season with Mindbender's Ambition raising a few eyebrows on its return. Although it's far from the shotgun that terrorised Crucible a few years ago, it's had the shackles applied, and now it's much more suited to solar PvE Guardians. There's also new Trials weapons, including a bow for the first time, plus new Iron Banner weapons with a sidearm, and also a rocket launcher. One thing Bungie added to this season was a new catch-up mechanic called the Gift of the Thunder Gods. That was a collection of art weapons and armour, allowing us to jump right into the latest content. This is most likely because of the Destiny 2 showcase and the marketing they had, because Destiny 2 has seen a huge influx of new players. You know, it's a great catch-up mechanic, and very welcoming for new players and returning players alike especially ones who want to jump into the latest season without grinding up from the Witch Queen. Well, next up we've got Arc 3.0, so the final subclass rework of the 3.0 version is with us, and that is Arc 3.0. There's a focus on speed and agility this time round. We've got new keywords with Amplified, Jolt and Blind, with Amplified allowing Guardians to move very quickly, when combined with Aspects and Fragments we can chain lightning together, but much more effectively than before. Hunters appear to have come out of Arc 3.0 in the best shape, with their new Gathering Storm Super, and Titans also have a very strong grenade game, and the general consensus is the Warlock drew the short straw. However, in my personal experience, the Warlock kit has been very positive, especially with the new exotic armor Fallen Sunstar, so the light subclasses, they are all done now, just in time for the new Darkness subclass to be added in light for Wiz Strand. Well, next up, we've got the returning raid, so King's Fall has returned, and much like the Vault of Glass last year, this one has had a lick of paint, plus many of the mechanics have been tweaked to fix the encounters back from Destiny 1, so Daughters and Oryx probably changed the most, given we can actually directly damage Oryx now. Touch of Malice, the exotic raid weapon, has returned, so gone is the quest to put together the weapon, it's now a random drop from the end of the raid, which again has angered some purists. Touch of Malice has quickly become the most desirable weapon in the game, but I haven't got it to drop for me just yet, but apparently it's got a higher drop rate than previous raid exotics, and I hope it's higher than Vex in the Vault of Glass, so I had to beat Atheon about 30 times to get that drop for me. I remember running Kingsfall over and over during 2015 and 2016. You know, back then we had the Destiny content drought, one of the longest in the eight years since the game was released, and Kingsfall was one of the only activities we had. So I wasn't really looking forward to it coming back, but now it's here. Actually, I really, really like it. Well, finally, we've got Crucible and SBMM, so loose SBMM has been implemented in the Crucible, and in what otherwise appears to be a strong start to the season, the SBMM changes aren't going down well with more seasoned Crucible players. It seems to work well for low to mid-skill players, but for higher skill players, they are just not happy, so one of the main reasons for this appears to be people quitting out of matches, and the Crucible not backfilling correctly. If players are quitting and simply not being replaced in a timely manner, I haven't really played enough Crucible to really have an opinion on the matter, but I would be really interested to know in what you think about it, so hit me up on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. Would really, really love to hear what you think of Crucible and SBMM in Season of Plunder. 
Well, that is pretty much a rundown of Season of Plunder. We are off to a strong start, although I've got a feeling that things could start to get darker by the end of the season as we head into the Winter of Discontent. Well, that is it for the moment for Season of Plunder. Next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. At number 10 this week, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. That is down five places from last week's number five. At number nine, down three places from last week's number six, it's Pokemon Legends Arceus. At number eight, up two places from last week's number ten, it's Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. And at number seven, it's Nintendo Switch Sports, down four places from last week's number three. At number six, it's Saints Row, down five places from last week's number one. And at five, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, down one place from last week's number four. At number four, it's F1 Manager 2022. That is a new entry. And number three, another new entry, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Cowabunga Collection. And number two, it's Horizon Forbidden West, although that one is being packed in by Sony PS5s. And then fresh in at number one, it's The Last of Us Part 1. So congrats to the team from Naughty Dog for this week's number one. Well, that is it for the moment for the all-platform charts. Well, next up, let's have a look at Gamescom 2022. I'm going to round out all the announcements from an opening night live. Well, Gamescom 2022 opening night live seemed like a little while ago now, but there were a bunch of decent announcements at Jeff Keighley's end of summer bash, so I'm going to recap all of that important information now. Well, the event kicked off with Everywhere, a new game from Leslie Benzies, you know, former Rockstar employee who was part of the team responsible for making a great success at Grand Theft Auto V Online. The description of exactly what Everywhere is was a little bit fluffy. You know, it looks like Fortnite, it sounds like Roblox. I reckon there's going to be a high chance of getting NFTs and Metaverse stuff in here. Now, I am interested to see more. There wasn't really much to go on other than the announcement. Dune Awakening was announced, which is a new open-world survival MMO by Funcom. This one was a cinematic trailer. Looks like it's going to be building on resurgence of Dune. And Sony also announced their DualSense Edge. That's a new wireless controller, much like the Xbox Elite controller. This one has customizable sticks, Paddles, grips, no doubt going to cost an arm and a leg. The Callisto Protocol is back with another trailer. Glenn Schofield had a chat with Jeff Keighley, hyping up the game. That one is coming out in winter 2022. Well, Lords of the Fallen was discussed by Hexwork Studio, and that looks much like Elden Ring. No doubt we're about to see a deluge of Elden Ring likes coming in 2023 and 2024. Then we got a change of tone, so Team 17 announced moving out too. Then we got Hogwarts Legacy. That got a new trailer, plus a release date of the 10th of February 2023. Randy Pitchford was then on stage talking up new tales from the Borderlands, which is available from October 2022, and then Dying Light 2 DLC from Techland is also due in October. Tortuga, a pirate's tale, was discussed with the trailer, plus Team 17's Marauders, that was also shown off as well. Bungie was there with their new trailer for Destiny 2 Lightfall, showing off the neon city of Neo Moon on Neptune, also showing off the new Darkness subclass Strand. This was the same trailer shown at the Destiny 2 Showcase on the same day, which we talked about in a previous section. So Lightfall is set for release on the 28th of February, 2023. Sonic Frontiers got a new trailer, plus a release date of the 8th of November, 2022. That seems very soon, considering the state of the trailers, but we're going to see how things go for Team Sonic. 
So Parallel Studio revealed Under the Waves, which is being published by Quantic Dream. Then you got Return to Monkey Island, that got a new trailer, and a release date of the 19th of September, which is very soon. I'm really excited about that one, given it's a point-and-click adventure game. Brandon Sanderson talked about Moonbreaker from the creators of Subnautica. This is a game about miniatures where you can battle, move them about a board, and paint them, quote-unquote, in a virtual world, similar to XCOM and Hearthstone. There's a beta for this one in September 2022. Then you've got Friends vs. Friends that was shown off as a deck-building first-person shooter. Lies of P, that was probably the talk of the show. Looks like a Bloodborne-like Souls game with Pinocchio. This one is coming to Xbox Game Pass on day one, coming sometime in 2023. So then we've got Stranded Alien Dawn. That was coming out via Early Access in October 2023, and that had a new trailer. We had Atlas Fallen, that was shown, a new fantasy action RPG from the developers of The Surge. Well, Genshin Impact's 3.0 update was shown off, plus we had more from the Hoyoverse with Honkai, Star Rail, High on Life also got a new trailer, the first-person shooter with talking guns from Justin Roiland, from the creator, that is from the creator of Rick and Morty. This time we saw a boss fight and the game is looking better and less annoying with each trailer. Well, Telltale's The Expanse was shown, that's coming in summer 2023, plus we saw Hard Space Shipbreaker from Blackbird Interactive, that is all about salvaging trash in space. There's also more sci-fi action too, with scars above. Wordsong got its first teaser trailer, a new role-playing game from Something Wicked Games. The studio is made up from ex-Bethesda and also Skyrim staff. Next we had Ottomans and Melian and Civ for Age of Empires 4, and that DLC is coming soon. Then a new trailer for Gotham Knights, showing off Harley Quinn is in the game. I don't know about you, I don't really need to see any more of Gotham Knights, let's just play the game. Hideo Kojima then came out and announced his new podcast, and also it's going to feature Jeff Keighley with regular news segment. Interestingly, we've now got Sakurai with a YouTube channel and Kojima with a podcast, so watch out there, content creators. The, the pros, they are coming. Well, next up we had Where the Winds Meet. That is a fun-looking Chinese action game. Part Beyond is a new theme park simulator. Warhammer 40,000 Dark Tide got a trailer. Actually looked really, really good. Blacktail, a witch's fate. A new first-person adventure game from Parasite and Phantom Hellcat is coming to consoles and PC. And Smilegate's Crossfire X just got a big update, although that is going to take some serious surgery to save the game in the West. Well, Opening Night Live ended with the announcement or the re-announcement of Dead Island 2. That has been picked up by Nottingham Bay Studio Dambuster, and it's coming on the 3rd of February 2023. So February 2023 already looks packed full of games, so we could be in for a rerun of 2022. Well, that is it for all of the opening night live news from Gamescom 2022. But next up, let's have a look at a great indie game. This one is Midnight Fight Express. Midnight Fight Express is a new isometric punch-up simulator where one man takes on an army of enemies in this modern take on the beat-em-up genre. The game is also packed with pop culture references, including Fight Club. Plus, the game doesn't really take itself too seriously, meaning you're going to be in for a fun time in this all-action indie brawler. Well, the game, as I say, is all-action. It's an impressive work, given it's only one person working on it. Jacob Dwinzel is the creator, though he's helped by the stuntman Eric Jacobus from God of War and Fernando J. Huerto from Destiny 2. They help bring the action in the game to life. 
We've had a few beat-em-ups this year with plenty of Turtles releases and also the recent Cowabunga Collection, plus Shredder's Revenge, plus also early in February we had Sifu, the very, very tough Kung Fu game. Well, Midnight Fight Express shows plenty of influence from fighting games and single-player story games with multiple enemies surrounding you and trying to overwhelm you. You have combinations and counter-attacks in your arsenal, plus you've got weight behind each attack, which helps Midnight Fight Express feel very good in the midst of the action. If you get bored of fighting with your fists, then you can always whip out your gun, acts as a major deterrent in the game, given how deadly they are compared to the fists. As you play, you're going to open up more abilities and moves, unlocking new nodes on your skill tree, and while this is a feature that isn't new, it's nice to see here in a fighting game setting, and it really helps set the game apart from the others. Different attacks start to emerge as combos from your basic attacks like uppercuts, sweeps and ground pounds. As you progress through the ranks, you're going to get access to other tools like a rope, which allows you to drag enemies by their feet, whip them around to knock over other enemies. It's a really, really fun attack. And guns can also be modified too, to include electrified bullets, which you can imagine take care of enemies very, very quickly. Finishing moves open up as well, so when you grab an enemy, you can throw them into a wall or kill them with a flurry of punches. Finishes often act as an exclamation point to a combo, and the game portrays a good variety in attacks, including Muay Thai, Taekwondo, and wrestling, with the creators sparing no expense when it comes to the motion capture, and that plays out really, really well in-game. It's a really, really good investment. The motion capture has had care and attention. It's not only two players facing each other, getting complex animations, You've got side attacks from behind, standing up against a wall, or standing in particular environments like a kitchen or a bathroom. Motion capture caters for multiple variations. It comes together really, really well in the gameplay for Midnight Fight Express. As well as the fighting moves, the styles and the techniques, there's lots of weapons to play with too. You've got knives, you've got guns, tire irons and wrenches. Now you're incentivized to experiment with different equipment due to the point system, where you're going to accumulate points through the levels that your performance have played back to you and graded at the end. This means using different moves, styles, weapons, and creatively using the different environments for more points, and that means higher scores. The scoring system in the game adds an incentive for players to go back into the game and play levels over and over again. So you've got 41 levels in the game, but they are very short and digestible, only often lasting five minutes each. The different environments help, providing variety through nightclubs, high-rise buildings, underground tunnels, and even video game studios. So you've got vehicles to mix things up too, including motorbikes and jet skis, although these sequences are few and far between. So much like beat-em-up games of the past where you've got the level moving on you, here you've got contextual levels too, like moving trains. You have to make through your way through the tight level on a moving train with a chopper in the background trying to kill you with a mounted machine gun. It is a really, really nice set piece. While the action, fighting, and motion capture are all very impressive with the game, Unfortunately, it's slightly lacking when it comes to the story. You know, the main protagonist doesn't really speak or have any dialogue. In fact, there's no voice acting in the game at all. No doubt to keep the budget manageable, especially given all that investment in the stunts and the motion capture. Dialogue is delivered through text lines, and often the quality of the writing doesn't really stand up to the quality of the combat, which is a shame. However, saying that, all in all, Midnight Fight Express is a great example of a modern-day beat-em-up brawler with excellent fighting mechanics which eases the player in and ramps up the difficulty. Where Sifu started hard and only got harder when it first came out, Midnight Fight Express eases you in, offers up a more player-friendly fighting experience. Also, it's an Xbox Game Pass, so if you've got that service, I'd recommend giving it a try. 
Well, that is it for the moment for Midnight Fight Express, but next up, let's check out my review of Tinykin. Well, Tinykin is a 3D platformer that looks a lot like Pikmin, although it plays rather different. It's fast, there's plenty to explore, and it's a game that's well worth checking out. Tinykin definitely speaks to the collector in you. It's a game that can be played in short play sessions. It's pick up and play, and you can get right into the action straight away. The gameplay loop is tight, there's lots of treasures to find, plus you have the tiny cute characters to keep you company. You know, the animation stars, a strange mix, with a cartoon vibe, and the main character's animation reminded me of Dexter's Laboratory, plus there's also the different animation styles which at first seems a little bit jarring, although you quickly kind of get used to it. In regards to the story in Tiny Kin, there's little to go on. So Milo, an archaeologist, is in search for humankind's origin. He left Aegis, his home planet, and followed a signal to a nearby galaxy, and Milo then turns up somewhere in the 90s, which is run by insects, Milo, unfortunately, is also very small, meaning it's a small player, big world type of game, similar to one of the best games of last year, and that was Grounded. Doesn't appear to be any sign of human life, and Milo needs to finish building a machine, using specific objects that can be found around the house. You are guided by Ridme, and have the ability of using tiny throwable creatures to help you solve puzzles and explore the environment. While the tiny creatures may sound like Pikmin, and it's an easy reference point for anyone to understand the game, they aren't actually like Pikmin at all. Yes, they are tiny characters, but the gameplay is very, very different. Tinykin doesn't have any combat, there's no day and night cycle, plus there's only a certain amount of them. Tinykin is a great 3D platformer, and these tiny little buddies just happen to be helping you out through opening paths, carrying objects and conducting electricity. So as you make your way through the game, you can open up new traversal abilities, including a skateboard-like mechanic with a soap bar. This allows for very quick travel, which you can get out in most situations, allowing you to zip around the game much faster than before, so it would have been great to access this from the start, and then again, a sense of progression in the game should be earned rather than just be handed to you. Now, other abilities can be collected too, including a bubble ability, which is similar to a ladder, allowing you to climb up high and get to those hard-to-reach places. Tinykin is easy to pick up and play and gives off Super Mario 64 vibes. Rather than collecting stars in each level, you are searching for Tinykin eggs to hatch, loads of pollen pieces to help you upgrade your bubbles, plus you've got side quests too to distract you from your main quest of getting the machine parts that you so desperately need. Levels involve multiple parts to solve to finally convince your insect friends to hand over the machine part. The puzzles in Tinykin are great and much like the platforming and structure to the game, it feels really player-friendly and streamlined. There aren't too many roadblocks to pat on your way, so that's not to say the puzzles are too easy, quite the opposite, but the game works with you rather than against you, allowing you to make your way through the puzzles in a natural way. The more you explore the game, the more Tinykin you'll collect, and you'll be able to get into all the nooks and crannies of the levels to find what you need. Well, the environments, they're good fun, and what you may expect with a small-person big-world game, there's a bathroom with a huge tower of toilet tissue. There's a toy racetrack level, and it's really, really good. Your tiny kin buddies are useful when it comes to helping you out with the puzzles, or when you're on a quest. You don't need to pay too much attention to them either. Just carry on through the levels, and they're going to let you know the info when you need it. Tinykin has a knack of pulling you in, and getting into the flow of the game is just about right. 
You've got your main quest, you've got your NPCs to talk to, your puzzles and your 3D platforming, and it all works together really, really well in this small but perfectly formed package. The levels have the pacing just right. There are distractions, but you can stick to the main path nice and easy if you want to. And the game isn't too long, coming in at around 7 hours or so, although maybe add on a few more hours if you want 100% the game. There's a lot of collectibles here. Some of them are pretty puzzling in terms of figuring them out, but I'm going to be going back in for sure. Overall, Tinykin was a really pleasant surprise. I didn't follow the release schedule for this one at all. It came out and I didn't really hear too much about it. I'd recommend doing the same. Now, if you're a fan of 3D platformers, that's all you need to know, as this is a really decent one and something that you should try out. It's also available on Xbox Game Pass and a perfect game for that service. Well, the developer was Splash Team, as published by Tiny Build. It's available on Nintendo Switch PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, also Series S and Series X. It originally was released on the 30th of August, 2022. Well, that is it for the moment for Tinykin, but next up, let's have a look at the games coming out in the next few weeks. Well, first of all, we've got Little Orpheus. That's coming on the PS5, Xbox Series S next, PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. That is on September the 13th. Also on the 13th, Scourge Bringer, coming to iOS and Android. And also 13, that is coming to Nintendo Switch. Then on the 14th of September, we've got You Suck at Parking. That's coming out on Xbox Series S next, Xbox One and PC. I think that one's coming out on Xbox Game Pass 2. Then we've got Bear and Breakfast. That is coming out on Nintendo Switch. That is on September the 15th. Also on the 15th, one of the year's most anticipated releases, this is Metal Hellsinger, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, and also PC. Then we've got Outer Wilds, that is coming out on September the 15th through PS5, Xbox Series S and X. Splitgate, also coming out on September the 15th, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Also on the 15th, we've got Wayward Strand, that is PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Then on the 17th of September, we've got Return to Monkey Island. On the 20th of September, we've got Hard Space Shipbreaker. That's PS5, Xbox Series S and X. Also on the 20th, Jack Move. PlayStation 4, Xbox One and Switch. Then we've got Solstice, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, and also PC. On September the 21st, we've got Gundam Evolution. That's coming out on PC. And we've got No Place for Bravery. That's coming out on Switch and PC. That is on September the 22nd. Also on the 22nd, we've got a few games. We've got Serial Cleaners, Session Skate Sim, Slime Rancher 2, and the Dealfield Chronicle. And also on September the 23rd, we've got Shovel Knight Dig. That's coming to Switch, PC, and iOS. Well, that is going to be it for this week's episode, but if you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions and your comments and your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. Well, thank you so much for watching and for listening. And for more This Week in Video Games content like this, like, subscribe on YouTube and share with a friend. Or you can follow me on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out the other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you soon.